you should always be aware of what's on the horizon um, when it affects those ingredients in your formulation. Um, I would say some upcoming bands really close now um, uh, that have affected a lot of products are the bands on fragrance allergens, Lyral and Lilial. Hi everyone, welcome to our podcast, The Beauty Beat, where we track the pulse and beat of the beauty industry from across the beautyverse. Be it big and small beauty brands, beauty tech and gadgets, e-commerce and marketing, ingredients and packaging, and everything in between. I'm your host, Elisa Lorenz Artsner. On today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Sarah Smiley, Senior Regulatory Officer at Personal Care Regulatory Limited, which offers consulting and end-to-end -end compliance services for cosmetic products. And today we'll be talking about important regulatory and compliance aspects to keep in mind when creating a beauty product. The regulatory space is extremely important to get right when you're selling a beauty product, since it could make or break your ability to adhere to your planned launch timeline or even launch markets. And it's something you need to nail correctly from the beginning. So get ready to take notes as we go into the regulatory pitfalls that beauty brands should avoid. Hi, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us today. Before we go into the regulatory topic, can you talk a little bit about your background? Hi, Alyssa, yes, of course. And thank you so much for having me on the Beauty Beat. Um, so I'm a cosmetic scientist. I've studied uh, cosmetic science at London College of Fashion, um, which really gave me a broad understanding of the cosmetics industry. So here I was introduced to many different areas like cosmetic chemistry, skin biology, formulating and R&D, uh, quality management, marketing, legislation, and also safety assessment. And my first industry experience was with Superdrug, so one of the leading health and beauty retailers in the UK. It was an internship as a new product development technologist. Um, so that role gave me an overview of the cosmetic product development process for their own brand products. So I started with Boots as a regulatory officer, which ultimately led me to my current role at Personal Care Regulatory as a senior regulatory officer. So at PCR, we work with a variety of businesses from small brands to large contract manufacturers. Uh, we really are a small friendly team specialized in guiding brands each step of the way to achieving full regulatory compliance and safety of their cosmetic products. So based on your broad experience, what are a few things that beauty brands often overlook when it comes to regulatory and compliance topics? Um, well, firstly, I don't think it's unusual for brands to initially overlook regulatory as a whole function. So small brands, when they're starting out, understandably are so focused on the making of their ideal product and getting the word out about their brand. They're often not familiar with the complex regulatory environment and will rely on their contract manufacturer to take care of this or refer them to an independent regulatory consultant. Um, in large brands, regulatory officers have to work hard to be visible and ensure that their project, manufacturer, uh, project manager factors in engagement with regulatory at the key points in the new product development pathway. Um, as silly as it may sound, I think the positive impact of engaging with regulatory is often overlooked. In practice, regulatory is seen in a negative light, maybe acting as a type of blocker to your well thought out marketing concept and claims. Uh, but actually, the given advice is really always for the protection of consumers and also the brand image. 
Um, as an example, um, I've experienced brands wanting to develop a range maybe to combat acne and claim free from benzoyl peroxide. Um, we've had to push back and advise that acne is a medical condition. So any products that treat acne are medical products. Also in the EU and UK cosmetic regulation, uh, it doesn't permit the use of benzoyl peroxide in skin products. So this claim would be misleading consumers. We do try to offer alternative suggestions um, to not appear so negative and be more collaborative, but you do have to remember we're not copywriters. Uh, we are regulatory, so really advising on what you can and can't do rather than being so creative with our wording. Another thing that can be not really thought about is when to engage with regulatory and what information or documentation to have ready. Um, it can be a headache for everyone involved when brands engage with regulatory only at the final MPD stages. Um, so at Personal Care Regulatory, as an independent consultant, we often get full regulatory compliance service requests just before production and printing of container and carton artwork. Sometimes it can be tricky and time consuming, I would say, to get hold of the right documentation needed for the compliance reviews or for the safety assessment. So having conversations with regulatory support right from the start. So once you have a product brief and all the way throughout the NPD pathway can avoid costly delays to your launch. What are some kind of key documents that come to mind just to help listeners prepare in advance? Yeah, so I guess if you're asking for maybe an artwork review, you know, you think, oh, I can just send my artwork, that will be enough. Um, but actually there are elements on the artwork that we need to check all right, so maybe um, you've got your maiden statement on there, made in the UK, for example. Well, we need what we call a good manufacturing practice certificate just to check that that is where the product is actually made as well. Um, we need a formulation sheet, uh, at least, to, to determine that your ingredients list is correct on your artwork. Um, and also we need to understand whether you are claiming uh, PAO or the date of minimum durability, which uh, again, would need further documentation to, to clarify. Um, so yeah, uh, just back on to another thing that I think a lot of brands often overlook, uh, I would say the impracticality of having a single compliant artwork for a large number of markets. Um, so quite often we get requests for one globally compliant label, but really that's just a dream situation. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of differing label requirements for different markets. I mean, in the EU alone, there are different translations requirements, different packaging waste requirements. Um, and then there are even consumer protection laws and advertising requirements. Uh, so for example, if you wanted to send your product to the Middle East and your product actually has a picture of maybe a lady and her shoulders are exposed, well, that would be considered indecent in the Middle East. So you then would need to amend your artwork for that market. Um, I would say another thing that needs um, consideration uh, when starting up a brand is uh, who's gonna do your safety assessment and what to look out for. So I think brands and their contract manufacturers typically select a safety assessor based on their cost and turnaround times. And I think the quality of the report can be overlooked, maybe in cases where they don't have 
the expertise to know what makes a good quality cosmetic product safety report. Um, so a regulatory specialist or safety assessor can provide advice in this area, um, but I would say key things to look out for in your reports. Um, so really, are there any caveats due to unavailable data? And by this, I mean, for example, when you look to your stability and microbiological quality sections in your report, can you see a clear conclusion? So for example, this product has undergone and passed a three month accelerated stability test and PAO can be claimed uh, or a preservative efficacy test has been conducted according to this method and it's passed. Or does the report simply state that the product must pass a stability test and the preservative efficacy test must also be passed. Um, if it is the latter, then you may have some issues upon inspection without that data on the required test to show. Um, another thing to look for is really um, the qualification of your safety assessor. So in the UK and EU regulation, it does give specific mention to theoretical and practical studies in toxicology, medicine, pharmacy, as accepted qualifications. Um, other similar scientific disciplines can be accepted, but it really depends on what each individual member state does accept. So sometimes this can be tricky to understand what other um, accepted qualifications are and until you're inspected. Yeah, so many details to think about. So maybe let's talk more concrete action steps. If I was going to start a new beauty brand tomorrow, what are some regulatory activities I should plan for and, and in what order? Um, so first off, I would advise you to reach out to a regulatory uh, specialist and discuss your product brief. So your product brief should define exactly what you want to create, who will create it, where you're creating it for and, and um, sorry, who you're creating it for and where it will be sold. Um, so that really needs to be in place before you start any development work. Um, and it's important that you discuss this with a regulatory specialist first off to ensure what your briefing is actually a compliant cosmetic product and understand maybe the key points of when to engage with regulatory throughout development. Um, I guess one thing to think about straight away is determine who's going to be your responsible person for the UK and EU markets. Um, so the responsible person, as I've said, is uh, legally responsible for the compliance and safety of your product throughout its life cycle. So therefore, the RP must have the technical capability to ensure this, um, but also to communicate with competent authorities upon inspection. Uh, the RP must be established within the market, and it can be the manufacturer, distributor, importer, or a third party, such as a regulatory consultant established within the market and designated by written mandate. And that responsible person must hold what's known as the product information file, your PIF. So documents for this are collated all throughout development and they're kept up to date throughout the product lifecycle. So uh, the RP must hold this PIF for a period of 10 years following the date on which the last batch of cosmetic product was placed on the market. And it contains um, a few different things. So first of all, a description on your product so that it can be easily identified, manufacturing method and compliance with GMP. So good manufacturing practices. It can be a certificate for maybe the internationally recognized standard 
ISO 22716, or it could be a statement um, just showing what, what, their pro what process they're adhering to mm -hmm. or GMP. Um, it should also contain proof of effect of uh, all your claims for the product, uh, data on animal testing and your safety report. So th that's really um, what you should be thinking about all the way throughout your development. So as you're going across and even when your product's on the market, constantly keeping that up to date. But in terms of when you're first off developing and you want to discuss your brief with regulatory, I suppose the first thing that you'll be talking about is the classification of your product. Um, so based on your brief, the regulatory specialist will firstly advise you on whether it's actually classed as a cosmetic based on the definition provided in uh, the regulations of the market you wish to sell in. Um, usually it can be straightforward. Or as opposed to a medical product, you mean? Exactly, yeah. So, so in terms of classification, it really depends on what uh, regulation your products fall under. Cosmetic, uh, medicinal, bioside, medical device, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it can be quite tricky in, in some situations. Um, thinking about now, maybe you've got a sunscreen product, which is classed as a cosmetic in the EU and UK. Um, and maybe you want it to have an insect repellent effect also, but insect repellents are actually classed as biocides. Um, so then it really depends on um, what ingredients you're using, um, what you want to claim about the product and its overall presentation. So from all of that, uh, the regulator needs to establish the primary and secondary function. So if it can be concluded that overall the product is a sunscreen and it's just got this kind of added benefit of an insect repellent, then you can probably class that as a cosmetic product. Then you want to, I guess, at the brief stage, think about the type of claims um, that you want to make in their compliance. Um, so it's important to define exactly what you want to say about your product on pack, on your website, social media, and other advertising channels. And the specific wording really does matter in terms of developing a formulation that will fulfill those claims, uh, the feasibility of covering evidence to support the claim. So are you looking to base your claims solely on ingredient literature or are you actually prepared to conduct finished product efficacy tests? Um, and then also, I guess, the main thing is whether that particular claim is accepted in the markets that you want to sell in. So the next thing that you would want to think about is your formulation compliance. Um, so once you've developed a formula in the lab that you're happy with, uh, you can request a compliance check for the markets you intend to sell in. So at Personal Care Regulatory, uh, we can also help with selecting raw material sources as well based on impurity profiles. Um, and then you can be confident in proceeding to conduct your three-month stability and 28-day preservative efficacy testing. Um, and I have unfortunately witnessed cases where formulation compliance review was actually an afterthought and it turned out that an ingredient concentration was higher than the EU annex restriction and so reformulation and repetition of testing was uh, required so I would really always say as soon as you have a formula and a sample that you're happy with make sure it's compliant before you go any further with it.
Um, another compliance aspect you need to think about is your artwork. So when you're creating your artwork, um, that needs to be submitted to someone who can review it for compliance in terms of does it have your RP name and address on there? Um, so you've got to have, if you're selling in both the, the UK and the EU, you need a, um, an RP based in both those markets and their names and addresses both need to appear on your pack. Um, you need to have a country of origin, so your nominal weight, so maybe like 50 mils, and there are particular size requirements for that to be on, on the pack. Um, then you've got your period after opening and or date of minimum durability, which depends on your shelf life, which your manufacturer should be able to advise on. Mm -hmm. um, you've got to display any legally required warnings. Um, the safety assessor of your product can actually advise, uh, well, define the warnings that need to be on your artwork. So before printing artwork, it's definitely always worth having your safety assessment so you can ensure those uh, warnings are on your artwork. Um, and then, of course, your ingredients list, uh, your compliant claims and any logos relating to maybe certification or packaging waste requirements. And then um, I guess the, the other aspect is your cosmetic product safety report. So there are quite a few documents that are needed um, to be collated for this report. Um, so the report assesses the safety of the finished product through considering GMP. So uh, again, good manufacturing practice, what we discussed earlier. Um, we need, uh, I guess, for the CPSR, a final formulation. And it's important that this really is a full breakdown of your formulation. Quite often we see formulations submitted that um, just have maybe the percentages for a raw material mixture, or maybe it's not clear on uh, what particular sources of raw materials were used from the formulation sheet. We really need uh, the exact percentages of the substances uh, in the final formulation and, and to know where they've come from. So also the supplier and the actual brand name behind the ingredients. Yeah, for, for each ingredient, we, we need like a trade name, a supplier, so mm -hmm. we can really understand the source um, of that ingredient. And obviously you need your raw material documents to be submitted as well. So uh, we should have all of that information in there, um, but it is always good to have a full breakdown on your formulation sheet. The safety report also considers the physical chemical characteristics of your product. So thinking about like the appearance, the odor, the pH, viscosity, um, and you'll find all of that information on your bulk specification. Um, obviously, as I've said, the stability and microbiological quality needs to be assessed. So we need reports for that. Um, packaging compatibility, that's usually assessed with your stability. Um, again, yeah, so any, any kind of impurity data that we can have for the ingredients on the product um, is useful to consider in the CPSR. Um, and then, of course, you've got like maybe the directions for use and maybe so what we say normal and reasonably foreseeable use. So um, we need to ensure that that's accounted for. Um, undesirable effects, exposure, toxicological profiles, and then once all that is put together, uh, the safety assessor will give it a conclusion 
a reasoning um, and specify any warnings that need to be on your pack. Once you have a complete product information file, you're ready to notify uh, your product on the EU CPMP and UK SDPM portals. Um, so for this, it's just really submitting information on your product to competent authorities and poison control centers uh, before your launch. And it really just is information of importance. It's not your full PIF that you upload here. And I guess it's important to note as well um, that it's only the competent authorities and poison control centers that can view this information. You know, the public mm -hmm. cannot access this information. And, and what's the timeline prior to launch that they would need to have this information? How long does it take them to turn around the review? So, so to do the notification, it's, it can be done very quickly, um, but it just needs to be done before launch. So I would say, um, given if we have all the information there, it can be done within a day for sure. Um, but our turnaround times, we usually advise, advise maybe at least five working days just to be sure that we can plan for um, completing the task. Um, yeah, and once you've notified your product and you've got your PIF, complete you're ready for launch um but it doesn't stop there you've still got <laughs> to consider um your post-market surveillance and what we call cosmetovigilance so basically ensuring that your product remains compliant and safe throughout its life cycles you know and also abiding by changing regulations correct yeah. if you have exactly. to reformulate mm -hmm. definitely so if you are aware of a new upcoming restriction you've got to have an action plan um to make sure your product's still compliant if if that restriction would mean um, when it comes in, your product isn't compliant. Um, so you really need to understand that you can sell through all your current products uh, or remove them from the market and then reformulate and get that out. Hmm. You make it sound so easy, but <laughs> just making a mental note of everything you've said, there are so many things to keep track of and so many documents to prepare um, that it really makes, I mean, I see why many, Many brand founders, of course, try to outsource this just to make sure that it's done properly by a real expert like yourself. Definitely, and yeah, it's and, and difficult to, to keep up with the changing regulations all the time, especially when you're in a brand and you focus on so many other aspects. It's it's really hard to, to do this, uh, I guess, mm -hmm. in such an in-depth way alone. And you mentioned earlier the importance of working with the right regulatory expert, whether it's you know, you're working in a big brand and someone in-house or, or within the contract manufacturer you work with or, or at an external consultancy like PCR. Do you have any tips, maybe just a few key points about what to look for when you're looking for the right regulatory partner? Yeah, of course. So I would say small brands typically can't afford uh, regulatory personnel and it can be very appealing to leave everything to the manufacturer. Um, however, I would say it's worth getting advice from experts in the field to make sure that your PIF is in a good place. Um, large brands and contract manufacturers, they may have their own internal regulatory team. Uh, however, they may also work with an external regulatory consultant to maybe help cope with periods of high workload. Um, or brands may also choose to um, work with a regulatory partner who is based in another market where they are not. Maybe they have uh, more advice there to provide. Um, I guess also thinking about the EU, UK, um, you've got to have your RP based in the particular market. So in the UK, an RP based there, in the EU, another RP based there. 
Um, so if you don't have a physical office presence in one of those locations, um, you probably are going to partner with someone else. Mm -hmm. um, I would say important qualities to look for in a regulatory consultant. So I guess first off, if you've got absolutely no knowledge of the regulations, then it's really important that you can work with someone who can explain this in a really understandable manner. Um, so what needs to be done and when. Um, I guess at PCR, we take a more personal approach as well. So with regular face-to-face -face calls to discuss the progression of the project, um, I think that's more engaging for our clients and really helps them to um, keep a track and, and understand what's going on behind the scenes. Um, I guess also communicating directly with the manufacturer to ensure that there are no issues with the PIF is um, something that uh, I'm not sure every regulatory consultant would do, but it's really useful, particularly if you don't have the knowledge to, to use the right terminology in your communication to these manufacturers, or um, if you don't own the formulation, then as a third party, the regulatory consultant can sign an NDA with the manufacturer um, in order to complete those PIP reviews and safety assessments. Um, I guess, yeah, due to Brexit, like I've said, when you're selling in the UK and EU, you've got to have a responsible person physically based in those locations. And I guess one consultant with a presence in both the UK and EU uh, can be quite appealing um, and simplify things. Um, I think another thing to think about is, well, you should be having discussions with your responsible person about cosmetovigilance and ensuring that they can explain clearly um, how they set up their cosmetovigilance system with you um, in order to ensure uh, the safety of your product there on post-market surveillance. Um, and it can be beneficial to have internal toxicologists or safety assessors who can review and update your CPSR when needed in that case. Um, I would say cost and lead times are always important considerations, but I think you've also got to consider the quality of the output. So as I mentioned earlier, obtaining the right documentation for the service can be tricky and time consuming. So will your regulatory consultant persist to gain all of this documentation? For example, maybe to deliver a good quality safety assessment or will they work with what they're provided with first time? Um, so at Personal Care Regulatory, our approach is to collaborate with you uh, in order to achieve a high quality CPSR and PIF. Um, and lastly, I just want to say that a responsible person is not just an address. Um, the RP really has to be proactive in updating you on changes in the regulation. Um, it's got to be a company that is trustworthy. Um, and so checking, you know, does it have, do they have a physical address? And it's not just a post box address. Right. So many useful tips. Um, now our final question. I mean, I feel like we could go on all day because you have so much knowledge, detailed knowledge and very actionable insights on this topic. But for our last question to summarize, if we now switch gears to focusing not on uh, what, what brands should do or what they should look for in a regulatory partner, but, but what some are some of the regulatory topics that are changing now that should be on all beauty brands radars? Yeah, of course. So I think, uh, well, I've touched on Brexit. So I think I'll just go into a bit more detail there. Mm -hmm. um, 
So brands now must ensure full compliance with both the EU and UK regulations. So the new UK regulation uh, is called Schedule 34 to the Product Safety and Metrology Regulation. I would say it's currently a mirror of the EU regulation, but probably there will be differences in a year or two with different ingredients being assessed at different time points. Um, so yeah, key thing, brands selling in the UK and the EU must have an RP based in both locations. Um, if you've got products that were placed on the market prior to Brexit, so the 1st of January, 2021, they're okay to keep circulating within the market until they reach the end consumer. So this is part of the withdrawal agreement. Um, but when you're thinking about products placed maybe on the EU market after Brexit, uh, they must comply with the EU regulation. So if you previously had a UK RP name and address on pack, you now also need to have the EU RP name and address on pack. Um, if your product is manufactured in the UK and you didn't previously, so you didn't need to have the country of origin on your packaging for circulating within the EU single market. Um, but now since the products would be imported, um, the country of origin is required to be displayed there. Um, thinking about placing products on the UK market after Brexit, there is uh, a two year transition period uh, to amend your packaging for um, artwork for compliance. So that, that's an, a nice amount of time, I would say. Um, I guess another thing that brands should always have on their radar is upcoming ingredient bans and restrictions. Um, so they should, you should always be aware of what's on the horizon um, when it affects those ingredients in your formulation. Um, I would say some upcoming bans really close now um, uh, that have affected a lot of products, uh, the bans on fragrance allergens, Lyral and Lilial. Um, so for Lilial in particular, that needs to be, products need to be off the market uh, by the 1st of March, 2022. Um, and then there's also, I guess, D5 in lead bomb products, that's also under assessment. Um, so that should be on your radar. Um, another thing, maybe we can talk about claims, particularly sustainability claims, uh, because I think they're very um, popular at the moment and yeah. I think consumers are sort of seeing through uh, the kind of vague greenwashing claims more now and understanding that for a lot of brands on the market, sustainability is just a buzzword. Um, so I would advise you to really be specific ensure you have the right substantiation in place. So just saying your product is sustainable isn't really great. You need to be specific in its qualification and also consider the whole supply chain, not just your end product. So if you can communicate with your consumer exactly what is sustainable about this product um, in terms of or maybe just like an environmental benefit of the particular packaging used or just, just really nailing down what the benefits are instead of just using a blanket, this is sustainable. Mm -hmm. And that's where you see a lot more brands working more closely with their suppliers to also um, to substantiate the claims on, in their communications and packaging. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, I mean, it's something that we should all be working towards, but I think in order to really communicate true benefits, you've, you've got to be specific so mm -hmm. it doesn't confuse the consumer and they don't just think, oh, 
it's just another buzzword. Another topic mm. is influencer marketing. So quite a lot of brands now are using influencers on social media to kind of advertise their products. Um, but I would say training the influencer for this type of marketing is really important. So the influencer mustn't make any claims without substantiation, just like the brand itself. Um, and you have to make it very clear that it's a paid for ad. Um, the Advertising Standards Authority, ASA in the UK, um, are really nailing down on uh, these type of uh, advertisements on social media. And they have some really great guidance on their website. So if you haven't read it already, I would really recommend that you check that out. Um, and then lastly, I would say safety. It's a topic that should always be on everyone's mind. Um, I think consumers are now becoming more aware of what ingredients are in their products. Um, and I would advise brands in particular to look into, um, so, so when they have their safety assessments, it's important that the impurities of the exact raw material sources you're using is a very important part of the safety assessment. Um, so example, making sure that uh, your source of talc is free from asbestos. That's very important. So you, you must communicate with your safety assessor whenever you are changing your raw material uh, sources so that they can actually review that CPSR again, consider all that impurity data in your new sources uh, and ensure that your product is still safe whilst changing those uh, raw material. And then I guess another aspect of safety again is, is cosmetic vigilance, ensuring that you've got a good system in place in order to gather those customer complaints relating to safety. I mean, quite often, like brands just say, oh no, we haven't ever received a, a complaint on our product related to the safety, but have they actually thought about how they're going to receive those complaints? You know, Do they have right. good communication channels with like their retailers? They need to be constantly checking their social media as a mm -hmm. platform there, uh, their websites. Um, yeah, so, so any way that they could potentially receive a complaint, they need to be looking into that. And then once they are aware of those complaints, you need to communicate that across your supply chain so that your responsible person is aware, your safety assessor can update, um, your safety report, um, the manufacturer should be aware as well. Uh, if there is a need maybe even to, to change the formulation um, based on, on your safety assessment as well. So it, it's just really important to ensure that you've got good communication all throughout there. Uh, it is a very challenging task, but it's something that you should really consider looking into. Got it. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was a lot of information. I learned so much and it was it was really fascinating, but also very useful. And, and as I mentioned earlier, full of really actionable insights. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today and for letting us essentially download your brain filled with so much experience and, and also so many up-to-date regulatory and compliance topics. Thank you so much for having me, Alyssa. It was fun to talk with you. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. You can find more information on Sarah's company, Personal Care Regulatory Limited, by going to covalo.com and clicking on Browse Services. Covalo makes beauty product development fast and easy by connecting industry suppliers and buyers. You can explore thousands of beauty ingredients, formulations, and service providers on one of the largest databases out there. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter and get in touch with us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook using our handle, Join Covalo.